Beloved congregation of the Lord, in many seasons of the church's history, she has been characterized by being the victim of great persecution from the world. In the second century, in the very dawn of the New Testament Christian era, there was such a time throughout the Roman Empire. Christianity, you see, was an illegal religion, and to be a Christian meant paying a very great cost. To be killed or to fed to lions or betrayed or otherwise marginalized in various ways was a terrible fate that would befall the Christian. And to justify this hatred against the Christians, there were various justifications from those pagans in the Roman Empire. Sometimes they would say, well, hear how they speak of feeding upon the blood and the body of Christ through their Lord's Supper. These so-called Christians, they are cannibals, cannibals. Sometimes they would hear about how it was that they spoke to one another as brother and sister. Sometimes even husbands and wives referring themselves to this way. And so they would come to the conclusion, these Christians, they practice incest, incest, lies, slander against the people of God. Indeed, the Lord's Supper is a spiritual ordinance and not a carnal. Indeed, we call one another brother and sister because we are part of a spiritual family. What explains this hatred? Well, one of the early Christian leaders by the name of Tertullian wrote what he entitled the Apology. Not because he was apologetic or sorry for being a Christian, but to defend the Christian faith. And this is what he said about the great hatred experienced by the Christian church. Quote, It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another, they say, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready even to die for one another, they say, for they themselves would sooner put to death. There it is, the utter difference between the Christians and the world. It is the Christians who are characterized by true love, sacrificial love for one another. And this, he says, only serves to embolden the hatred of the world. Well, much time has passed, but I think we would say that though this world of ours still fancies, sometimes fancies itself, as being uh, the champions of love, uh, as over against a hateful Christian religion, we ought to see that where we speak of the true church and those who are truly born of God, this surely must somewhat explain the hostility to the Christian church even today. That is the Christian who bears forth the, fr- the true fruits of love, Love not defined by culture or society, but by the true standard of the Lord. In these sections of 1 Peter, we have been considering that apostle's writings to the early church, much earlier, of course, than Tertullian's time. Throughout the land of Asia Minor, 
the scattering of Christians throughout that region are the recipients of this word of exhortation from the Apostle Peter. And in the concluding words of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, you see how he is focusing on a few core themes. There is the word of God which lives and abides forever. That powerful word which the Holy Spirit is pleased to uh, grant the grace of regeneration, the new birth, that new creation in the souls of the Lord's people as they are united unto Christ and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of that spiritual life that is set forth here is that of brotherly love. We dwelt at some time upon that, considering those words in verse 22, seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. This matter of Christian love it is indeed a grace of the Holy Spirit, a solemn obligation of all true Christians. And surely it must be a mark of the true church. Where we would look at the church and we would look at the world, surely this must be what characterizes the true people of God and the true church of the living God. See how they love one another. And yet it is not an automatic thing. Indeed, we all know from sorry experience that the church is composed of sinners. And no honest Christian would deny that if there were a perfect church out there, it would cease to be perfect the moment that we would join it. We are a sinful people. And that process of progressive sanctification, greater holiness as the Holy Spirit works a greater work in the lives of his people. It is an ongoing process, one in which indeed the Holy Spirit sovereignly works and blesses, but after regeneration, one in which we are most active in, putting sin to death, Pursuing holiness and righteousness and love with our whole being. So is the calling of the Christian. And so it is, as Peter says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. We consider it simply there, not considering the rest of the sentence now, but simply looking at that verse, wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. It's not the sort of verse that maybe you would put on a plaque in your home to inspire you. It is not the sort of verse that perhaps we've memorized, and yet it is part of the word of God here. It is set forth as the terrible negative to the positive duty of love. The unbrotherly sins, which too often characterize the people of God. As we seek to do justice to this portion of scripture, we do plead that the Lord himself would seal these words upon our hearts to our good and to his glory.
We consider this solemn theme of unbrotherly sins. Unbrotherly sins, simply two things, exposed and laid aside. Exposed and laid aside. The preaching of sin in its heinousness is not something that is likely to encourage the one who is looking just for a pleasant and a smooth word from the pulpit. And yet it is the mark of every true servant of God that they deal with the hard sayings also with their own people. Look at the prophets of Jeremiah. Look at the prophets of John the Baptist. Look at Christ himself. Look at the apostles themselves as Peter himself exemplifies. All of them deal honestly with sin, not only in general in the abstract, so as it were, we take out a great big pinata and all take our little clubs and we beat against this great monster called sin while never defining or specifying. No, the true preaching of sin is also that of specifics, the specifics that would manifest themselves also in our own midst. You need to hear preaching about your sin. It is this means by which you are humbled under the great hand of God. You are brought to confess your sins and through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to forsake it. It is exposed for us here. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. Here are things that emanate from the polluted heart of sinful humanity. Lord Jesus spoke truly of the ungenerate, those without the new birth, where he said in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 to 35, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. This world would seek to excuse itself, together with all unconverted professing Christians. Excuse themselves. These things do not live within us. These things are so far from our experience we never have to consider them. And yet the one who is discerning and spiritually sensitive will hear Christ's words and cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know that my heart is one that houses many abominable sins. And indeed, there is nothing but the grace of God that keeps me from indulging in the very worst of sins and for whatever Graces have been manifested in myself in laying aside and turning away from sin, yet it is a daily fight. You see, these are exposing not the sins of the unconverted, but the converted. Not those who are unregenerate, but those who are born again. Look at the context both before and after. It is of those who have been born again by the everlasting word of the gospel those whom the Holy Spirit has touched their souls and brought them into a living acquaintance with the living God. 
of these ones. The apostle can say that surely you relate to this experience, the good that you would, that you do not. Yes, indeed. In us dwelleth no good thing. Indeed, though born again by the Holy Spirit, having that principle of life within yet the old man, yet resides, bringing forth the very same things which enslave the unconverted non-Christian. They also plague and torment the true Christian. Here is the, the difference. The one who is not a Christian can sin and love him. The one who is not a sin can languish in their sins, for they are under the power of sin, and they revel in their sins. The one who has passed from death to life, they feel that torturous reality of their sin as an appalling, wicked thing. And so they mourn and grieve it and fight and turn from it all their life long. Exposed the reality of sin, wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. How are we to divide these and to explain them particularly? Well, you notice that they are grouped together according to that little word, all. All. Three little groups. The first group with one word, all malice. The second with three words, guile, hypocrisies, and envies. And the third category, evil speakings. What is the relationship between these? Well, you can, if you like, write this down. Three words that begin with A. Attitude, agenda, action. Attitude, agenda, action. First, look at this unbrotherly attitude. Wherefore, laying aside all malice. Malice. Do a word study of this word and... What you come away with is that sometimes it refers in general to an evil attitude or disposition, but sometimes particularly that attitude that concerns hatred and desire to harm and to seek revenge from another. Malice. So here is... Something that can even live within the church, even to some degree within a born-again Christian. Instead of brotherly love and affection, delight and sacrificial devotion to the brothers and sisters, there is instead a hatred and a desire to tear down and to otherwise harm. Attitude. Second, look at the agenda. Look at these three words that seem to lay forth the overall project, the overall uh, activity and purpose that is going on here. Guile, hypocrisies, and envies. Guile, hypocrisies, and envies. Guile, that would refer to deception. Someone who is a deceiver seeking to indeed disguise and redirect from the truth. One who, with their words and actions, is a liar. 
Hypocrisies. This is one that's a bit more general. It speaks of putting on a mask, of being a hypocrite, putting on a show, putting on a, an act, trying to make yourself be, be perceived to be someone you are not or to be doing something you are not. And envies, well, this would speak of, if you look at the word usage in the Greek, somewhat of that ill will whereby the desires of the heart are bent and distorted so that where you see the light from another, it actually makes you sad. Where, it's, where you see someone hurting, it actually makes you happy. Those things join together to describe the overall agenda, the orientation towards brothers and sisters in the Lord, not rather seeking their good, but obviously acting in such a way as to bring them down. The unbrotherly um, attitude and the unbrotherly agenda. And then you have the unbrotherly action. One, one unbrotherly action set forth at any rate. Evil speakings, evil speakings. Any number of things can fall under this category, but surely you see the basic point even from the translation there. The wonderful gift of speech, of communication, of using your reason and mind to impart the truth and wisdom now used in order to tear down, in order to otherwise harm others, either through speaking in a cruel and a hurtful fashion or even speaking bald-faced lies. Here are the sins that are set forth, unbrotherly attitude, unbrotherly agenda, unbrotherly action, horrifying things, things that ought not to ever even be spoken among decent people, we would say, or even and especially those who profess the name of Christ, those who have been bought with that precious blood of the sinless Lamb of God, those who have been dwelt with the Holy Spirit of promise, those who have been adopted into the family of grace, and yet here are those things that are laid down. You remember what we read from that a man, James, from the fourth chapter. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence? Come they not hence even from your lusts that war in your members? There is indeed this that has as its root the cause of much tumult within the church. Much fighting and much and much strife, it is this, evil, unbrotherly sins arising from the sinful hearts of the Lord's people. Indeed, not as though these marks display themselves to be a true Christian. And indeed, where these things are in an enslaving overall life principle, they surely betray that this one is not at all acquainted with saving grace. But even those who are acquainted with saving grace still all their life long must war against these lusts that war against their godly profession. How can we 
consider somewhat of this and, and seek to profit by it. Well, let's consider some of the context in which these, these things operate. Because you understand where someone has an attitude like this, probably the agenda will also surface. Where there is the agenda, surely it will break forth from time to time also through their actions. And so rather than breaking them apart and considering them separately, let's consider it as the package, the one with the hateful attitude, the one with the nefarious agenda, the one with the evil speech. How is it they may be, temp- may be entering in, in the walk of the Lord's people? Well, it seems to me that where we are dealing with Christians who are born again, where the devil would seek to destroy the church, what would be the entry point or the occasion in which even a true child of God might be brought to this place where they would engage in such unbrotherly sins? Well, I think if you would consider for a moment, we'd have to say that the context of controversy is surely one of them. Controversy. Christians were always agreed on every matter of principle, on every matter of carrying out those principles about decisions that must be made or activities that must be engaged in, surely such sins would never uh, have much opportunity to take place. It's most easy to love those with whom we are completely agreed. The grace and the activity of brotherly love, it is strained and tested on those points, not where there is agreement, but where there is disagreement, not where there is perfect unanimity, but where there is controversy. Controversy. Do we say, therefore, that everyone who engages in controversy has hatred as a motive or has an agenda of deception or engages in that which is sinful with their mouth? Certainly not. Certainly not. In this world, there will be always controversies because in the nature of the case, the truth of God and the right carrying out of it must not be taken for granted. There have been occasions in the last years where you look in the broader church life of the denomination and the context of the church life of Canada, it's been necessary to engage in controversies. Why? Because important principles have been compromised. You think of the worship of God during the time of COVID. You think about the various temptations to water down important doctrines. Surely a Christian in such a time must be a person of principle if they are to follow the Lord. Of course, in more mundane things, we can see controversy entering in, even in the simple decisions that take place in a family or in a marriage or in a local congregation. Sometimes controversy emerges. And indeed, we must stand for what we believe to be right, and we must advocate for that to the uttermost. Controversy in itself is not sin. It is indeed just part of living in the world and seeking to live uprightly. Woe to men when all men speak well of you, Christ says. Largely, I think, because the one whom all men speak well of probably has never stood for anything. 
However, we ought to recognize surely that it is in this context where the devil is very near at hand. Is it not at that point where the Christian believes that he is right? Where the Christian believes that she is standing for a very important principle? That it is the most easy for malice to creep into the thoughts of other of the Christian towards other Christians. For if you are standing for what is right, how could it be that anyone would oppose you except that they are evil? How is it that indeed you could have such emotions against them except that they are hateful? And so it goes. We go down the slippery slope. The attitude sinks in. The whisperings of the evil one begin to bring this kind of excuse and apologetic that if what I'm standing for is right, then I am right in the attitude that I'm taking to the one that I am having a controversy with. And so it goes. It's been a most disheartening number of years where I would consider the COVID controversy, for example, Sometimes you would have men, pastors, who I utterly agree with, speaking not in our federation, but in the broader church community. And where I would utterly agree with the principle that they took upon those issues, sometimes it would bring such distress that with that comes the the belief sometimes that they have uh, the ability to say anything and to do anything to those who took an opposite position. Indeed, we would never excuse the compromise of the true principles, let alone the worship of God. But we do not therefore say that you can say anything about those who take an opposite principle to you. Everything must be weighed according to proportion, according to truth and honesty, and even the judgment of charity, saying things in a way that that surely others would would agree with, at least if they, if they were honest about their own position. We at least labor for that, surely. So it is, you could apply that to any number of other controversies. It's exactly at that point, Christian, where your words were, will most matter. For if in a good cause you speak that which is wrong or act in a way that is anything else than purely honest and forthright, that it's at that point that you bring the greatest reproach unto the cause that you stand for. Well, how about another context? Not just controversy. How about something very practical? And that would be gossip. Gossip. I think probably this was particularly what the apostle had in view because it's in a context in which loose lips speak much about about uh, others, that all these sins will emerge in one way or another, speaking in such a way about other Christians without their being present, that their reputation is damaged. And of course, where we think of those attitudes and agendas and actions that are leveled, we, we think of the biblical passages that concern it. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16, which we considered in a previous sermon from 1 Peter. There Moses records, Thou shalt not go up and down as a tale-bearer among the people, neither 
shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. A talebearer, one who would use communication and words in order to bring news that is damaging to the reputation of others. And the King James translates that word fairly consistently in, in other parts where it's used. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13, A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Oh, of course, we understand there's, there is uh, other biblical principles that need to be brought in with that. Not that you conceal sin, but that you deal with it in the proper way. You go to the brother, and if the, the brother refuses, then you bring a witness. And if they refuse to hear the witness, then you go to the church, Matthew 18. But here is speaking not in the context of those kinds of disputes, but rather concealing those things which, which really ought not to be said because they are damaging to the reputation of a brother or sister. They are secrets that ought not to be revealed. Proverbs 16, verse 27, An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is a burning fire. It's a dangerous thing, you see, gossip, when it begins to emerge. It's like fire begins to consume and burn and burn. Don't we know that from all the different forest fires that have caused such devastation upon our country in recent days? Sometimes it might just be the smallest thing, a little spark that is from someone trying to light a cigarette or a campfire, and then all of a sudden you've got an entire forest engulfed in flames. So it can be a single word spoken, having a devastating effect, destroying friendships, destroying lives, destroying churches. Why? Because there is this unguarded talk. Some of the worst or more, more, um, uh, cons- more striking warnings about the this are are made in the book of Proverbs. For example, Proverbs 26, verses 24 to 26. He that hateth dissembleth with his lips and layeth up deceit within him. Wherein he speaketh fair, believe him not. For there are seven abominations in his heart whose hatred is covered by deceit. His wickedness shall be showed before the whole congregation. Those things kind of go together, right? You have the talebearer with gossip, sometimes speaking things that perhaps you don't know to be absolutely false, but you certainly don't know to be true. And if you don't know something to be true, then is it really any different than lying itself? Because that which is not supported by the weight of facts must be considered a lie and that of the wicked sword. You look at Proverbs 26, verses 20 to 22. Where no woods is, there the fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceases. As the coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down to the innermost parts of the belly. The sins that we may speak with our mouths can sometimes leave greater wounds than those of our fists. You see, 
The terrible thing about words is that people carry them in their memories and souls long after they are spoken, long after you may have forgotten. They still linger in the memories of those that they are spoken against, causing grief and sorrow against, in this case, other brothers and sisters in the Lord. I think if we would speak of a third context, not only controversy, but also gossip, I think there would be this, and perhaps a bit more broad, but it is carelessness. Carelessness. How is it that any Christian could live in such a way and commit such sins? Surely it's because their guard was down. Instead of being watchful over their own soul, of their own lips, of their own actions, of their own attitudes, they circame to whatever extent to the deceitfulness of sin. And wherever sin gets a foothold, it is not content unless it devours the whole person in their whole life. Listen to what John Brown of Haddington wrote in his uh, sermon on this text. Quote, The exhortation, speaking of our verse, the exhortation strongly implies that those addressed have been originally depraved, wholly depraved beings, and that they were still partially under the influence of depravity. The exhortation is not, beware of putting on these, but put them off. Every renewed man has in his flesh his unrenewed nature. The evil heart, the seminal principle of every species of moral evil. And I do not know what is, what is, what is the sin which, if he is unwatchful, unprayerful, exposed to temptation and unrestrained by divine influence, he may not commit." Such exhortations to unregenerate persons loud sorry, such exhortations to regenerate persons loudly proclaim, be vigilant, repress the first movements of evil, shun even its appearance. Let him who think, thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Vigilance, care, attention. Look at the movements of your own heart. See every entry point of sin and know and understand that just as John Brown of Haddington said, there is no sin that you would not fall into if you surrender unto its power and are not restrained and helped by divine grace. Let us be most careful, congregation, with such matters. The Lord speaks such warnings not that we would ignore them, but that we would take heed. Matthew 5, verse 13, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. To be a Christian is to also show forth the marks of a Christian if that Christianity means anything. The one who claims the name of Christ must bear forth that holy life. And how is it to be done? Well, the apostle says this briefly in that command, which we will take as our second point, and that is laying aside sin. Laying aside sin. Wherefore, laying aside 
all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. Here the word speaks of casting away, throwing away. And you could think, for example, of that man Bartimaeus, that blind beggar who is crying out unto Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy upon me. And how the Lord Jesus commanded him to be called. Be of good cheer. He is calling you. And he, getting up, he threw away his cloak and came and followed Jesus. So it is that there is the throwing away of a filthy garment pictured here. As though what clung to you was drenched in filth and other appalling things. And it is used elsewhere in the scriptures, Romans chapter 13, verse 12. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. James chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Casting away sin. This is a Christian duty. A duty of the Christian that they must do through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. The one who has been born again unto a living hope is not under the power of darkness. He is not to live as a worldling, but is conduct, to conduct himself as a Christian is one who is a child of the living God. Notice how it puts here. It doesn't say to but modify this sin. It doesn't say to toy with it. No, it says to throw it away. It's even stronger than putting it to death. It means it must be eradicated. It all must go throw it away. The scriptures say the word and the will of God for you is that you part with this iniquity. And notice it doesn't say some malice or a bit of guile or this or that evil speaking. He says no utterly and completely. It all must go all malice, all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil, all evil speakings. You see, for the Christian, though in this life we never know perfection, there is always perfection held forth as the goal and purpose. God says to you and to me, walk before me and be thou perfect. The standard that is set before us is the holy will of God. Who can say, well, I will confess to be a Christian, but I will just harbor some of this malice towards my fellow Christians. I will claim to be a Christian and I will try to cut back on the gossip and slander and the evil speakings. No. The very honor of God and the will of God for you is that it all must go. You have no right to live in sin where you have passed from death to life and where God is so strictly spoken. And make no mistake, it is most displeasing to God when his children live in this way. You haven't just broken some rule, 
but you have offended the very God who has purchased you for himself. Listen to Psalm 50, which we sang this morning, verse 16. But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to, do to declare my statutes? Or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth, seeing thou hatest instruction and casteth my words behind thee. Verse 19, Thou givest thy mouth to evil, and thy mouth framest deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thy own mother's son. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such a one as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. God is not playing games. He is a holy God. He is a consuming fire. And how can any people claim to dwell amongst the living God while harboring such things knowingly and purposefully? Oh, may it be that we would all cry out, Lord, you speak truly. Lord, I have had these ungodly attitudes. Lord, I have given in to such impulses. Lord, I have even framed things with my words that I will have to give account for on the great day of judgment. O God, in your great mercy, forgive, we plead, according to your covenant of grace. Indeed, what would it be if it were not for the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ, he who is presented before us, as we saw this morning, as the almighty Savior, the one who is sufficient and able to forgive. He is the one who can help. He can heal the bruised and the wounded and the sick heart, who has harbored such coals of fire close to his bosom, leaving great wounds and scars and injuries. Draw near unto Christ and receive he who is the great physician. Go unto him and confess your filthiness, and in the power of his grace, turn from your wicked way. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. James chapter 3, verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Is there anything more glorious on this side of heaven than seeing a soul that has been changed by grace? Once they walked according to the ways of the world and the ways of these unbrotherly sins, and then to see them change so that they walk according to purity and wisdom and integrity... I put to you also that the very thought of repenting of such things, of confessing such things towards one another, confessing them towards God, and seeing that practically worked out in, in a life, that is a delight, the likes of which I, I say with reverence we will not even see in heaven. In heaven where there is only purity and righteousness, the joy of that moment of repentance where you turn from your wicked way and turn unto the Lord, it will not be known then. 
but it may be known now. You, dear one, you who have indulged with such sins, I tell you today, it need not continue another instant. Go unto the Lord and find into him plenty find in him plenteous mercy. Turn from your wicked way and know his peace. And this way we will be known to be his people. Amen.